1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today I'm speaking with Mary Crossley about her new book, Embodied Injustice Race, Disability, and Health, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Mary Crossley is John E. Murray faculty scholar and director of the Health Law Program at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. She's written broadly on issues of inequality in healthcare financing and delivery and has published articles in numerous law journals. Crossley's scholarly interests are reflected in a seminar she has developed on health justice. And she's also taught courses in health law and policy, bioethics and law, healthcare compliance, family law, and torts. She's an elected member of the American Law Institute and an appointed member of the Pennsylvania State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you. This has become such an important topic, and it's really interesting to have your perspective as a legal scholar. So to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background and how you came to write Embodied Injustice?
0: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I've been a law professor for 30-plus years now, and the common thread in my scholarship during that entire time has really been looking at how the law addresses, or in many cases fails to address, uh, instances of discrimination and injustice, both in healthcare settings and in health policy. And just kind of by a coincidence of timing, I, I became a law professor the year after the Americans with Disabilities Act was enacted back in 1990. And most of my earliest research explored how disability discrimination law could apply in various different health care and, and health policy settings. Um, I looked at things like you know, the doctor's decisions not to provide treatment for newborns that they believed were disabled. But I looked at how medical futility policies might have a particular impact on people with disabilities. Um, so as I was doing this work, and it was, it was, you know, largely um, an, an unplowed field, so to speak, because this was a, a new law. Uh, but as I was focusing on on disability and disability inequities, I learned increasingly how those inequities are really just one strand of a much larger fabric of disparities and inequities that black and brown communities and other groups um, that. That our society is marginalized that they experience um, and so as i began looking at some of those other groups focusing particularly on on black americans as i began studying how that group is affected by health inequities i began began noticing um just how often those experiences of black Americans resembled those of disabled Americans when it came to their experiences of health inequities. And I found it really striking. It's like, wow, look at that. Um, And so I I started looking at some of what what I sometimes will refer to as parallels. And I wrote a couple of articles where I examined a few of those similarities. For example, I, I wrote an article about how Medicaid funding cuts proposed back in 2017 would have been particularly devastating for both disabled people and Black people. Um, I wrote an article looking at some of the similarities between eugenic restrictions on childbearing capacity imposed on Black women and disabled women. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, after writing a couple of articles looking at these, these similarities or parallels, I thought, maybe it's time to step back. and and look at the topic more comprehensively, more holistically. Um, And that's really what led to my deciding to write a a book-length examination of the topic.
1: Yeah. So you've mentioned parallels there, and yet in the book, similarities and parallels between Black Americans and disabled Americans, but you also make it very clear that their experiences are are not the same. Um, They're not, you know, synonymous. Could you tell us a little bit more about with the parallels and in the differences between those two groups?
0: Yeah. So, so where I think the, so it's important to, to emphasize the point that you just made um, because there are, I think important concerns raised by attempts to analogize too much between the experiences of, Um, people who are black and people who are disabled, Um, the histories of of those two groups. And and I focus on the American context, the United States, Um, the histories of those two groups are quite different um, and their experiences are are different in important regards. Um, But having said that, I think there are a number of ways that these two groups um, have had experiences that are similar in important ways. And, and the thing that I kind of discerned um, as I was looking at these, these similarities is that a core similarity was that at the root of both um, of these groups were deeply ingrained, these groups' experiences were deeply ingrained and erroneous assumptions about hmm. bodily difference and bodily inferiority. And so that's really kind of where my title comes from. You know, it's embodied injustice. That's what I'm trying to express, that the the health-related injustices endured by Black people and those endured by disabled people flow in part from unfounded beliefs that there's something about the bodies and minds of disabled people and Black people mm-hmm. that is intrinsically different and somehow inferior as compared to the white abled bodies that the medical profession and the healthcare system and society more broadly have established as norms. Yeah.
1: And when it comes to the law, are they also treated have they also been treated as intrinsically different, inferior?
0: Well historically you know, I think it's important to, to look at history as a continuum, but there are also some important breaks in history. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, when you look at um, historical treatment of, of black people in America and their enslavement and, and subsequent to their um, emancipation, the, the use of Jim Crow laws. To subordinate um, and oppress Black Americans—that's um, an important history. When you look at the history of disabled people, it's it's a little more um, challenging in a sense because the group, you know, people with disabilities wasn't thought of historically as as a group, um, right? Mm-hmm. His, typically, um, people who were blind or people who had some kind of physical um, mobility disability, what we would today call a mobility disability, or people who um, were deaf or hard of hearing, they were each seen as being kind of separate groups. So the idea that there was some kind of almost like pan disability um, group identity is mm-hmm. is relatively recent. But, but certainly when you look at the kinds of laws that um, treated people who we would today call people with disabilities, um, segregated them from society by requiring them to live in in some kind of institution. Um, I think those kind of laws also had a segregating and and subordinating effect. Again, not at all the same as the history of black people, mm-hmm. but some similar effects. Today, when we look at the law. You know, one of the points that I talk about in the book is today we have laws that prohibit discrimination based on both race and disability, mm. but to date those lar- laws have largely failed to make much of a dent in health-related disparities based on race or disability. So that's why, you know, in the intro I talked about how the law really, in many ways, has not done a great job of addressing the inequities that we see. Um, people with disabilities and Black people experiencing, relating to health.
1: Yeah, nor has the medical establishment, as you will show. I I just wanted, um, because something else came up for me, as you mentioned several different types of things that might be considered disabilities. Could you give us a definition of disability?
0: (laughs) <laughs> How long do you have? Um, so, so there are. At one point, I don't have the number off the top of my head. But it, once when I was writing, I was looking at you know the number of different definitions of disability just in federal law in the United States, and there were a huge number of differing definitions of disability. So, if it, the, the definition that I tend to use most often um, is the one that is provided by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, And and under that definition, um, a person is considered an individual with a disability if they have a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. And so that also picks up on the idea that is is often used um, by health researchers who are studying disability, where they focus on activity limitations. Um, Mm -hmm. So so the law asks for the combination of an impairment of some sort that leads to uh, an activity, a limitation on some kind of activity.
1: Yeah, interesting. And I guess that could also be open to interpretation, but (laughs) yeah. Um, So okay, in in Chapter 3, which is titled Biology's in significance. You write that not until 2020 did the AMA, the American Medical Association, recognize race as a social rather than biological construct and acknowledge structural racism instead of biological difference as a cause of health disparities. But first of all, that wasn't until 2020. Um, and second, that acknowledgement hasn't necessarily led to great changes within medicine. and. My question to you, Mary, is why was the recognition of race as a social construct so long in coming to the medical establishment? Uh, and also, I have two questions. What are some ways in which it still treats race as a biological determinant of health?
0: Yeah. So um, those those are those are hard questions to answer, um, and I think that there's not particularly uh, the question of why is it so long in coming. Um, there's not a, a a single reason. I think there are a number of related reasons. Mm-hmm. I do think that that historically it, we need to recognize that there is a connection between medicine um, as a as an institution as a profession and white supremacy. Um, you know, there is a long history of the instrumental use of black bodies in medical research. If you look at um, Harriet Washington's book, um, Medical Apartheid, she provides numerous accounts of of the ways in which um, black Americans in particular have been um, subjected to non-consensual medical and other kinds of research. And, and, you know, we we have some well-known examples like the Tuskegee study, Um, in the United States, uh, as well as some less well-known examples like the work of J. Marion Sims, who performed gynecological um, surgical experiments on enslaved women. Mm. I mean, medicine has has really long understood race as a category defined by biology. Um, and, you know, there was even a historically a whole area of endeavor of research um, referred to as race science that that studied the division of humans into separate races and, and physicians were intimately involved in that. And, and when you look at the history of slavery in the United States, um, you know, people who were enslaving Africans and their descendants relied in part on the medical profession to justify beliefs in um, those black people's innate difference and in inferiority. Um, so, uh, I think <laughs> recognizing those deep, deep roots is important, and I think that that it's important, partly just to have the the full context, but also we know that the deeper the roots, the harder it is to pull out um, something, to extirpate something. And so, I think you know, even today. Um, there are a lot of myths in um, medical practice that have racist roots that, that mm. are probably more informally passed along today, right? The whole myth of, of um, black people's greater imperviousness to pain, um, which again has, has roots centuries deep. Yeah. Mm. Um, black people supposedly higher pain thrash- threshold was was used to excuse the brutality of, mm-hmm. of lashings and, again, justify doing surgical experiments on um, enslaved people without anesthesiology. Okay. Even today, research demonstrates that Black people are less likely than white people to receive appropriate pain management mm-hmm. by doctors. And, and it's unclear whether the reason is that um, simply there's some kind of Um, erroneous belief that black people are less sensitive to pain or to what extent it may be connected as well with racist beliefs about black people's greater propensity for drug-seeking behavior Mm -hmm. right for faking pain but there was a study published um back in 2016 where uh they were they were interviewing um Medical students and residents at a prestigious public university in the United States um, that, that showed that a significant fraction of medical students and medical residents, right, people who already had their their M.D.s and are continuing their training, hmm. h- held the belief that black people are less sensitive to pain than white people. Right. So I, I think that's not. I'm I'm pretty sure that doesn't show up in medical textbooks these days. Yeah. But myths and beliefs like that get passed along as part of the, mm. the so-called silent curriculum in medicine, right? Through kind of informal um, learning from more senior doctors. So, so you know, one important piece of it is kind of these racially driven myths. But mm. another another aspect of why I think that it's um, very hard to extirpate um, reliance on race and racism in medical practices that there's so so many places where whiteness is kind of embedded as the default or norm mm-hmm. in yeah. medical education and practice and even in the development of medical technology right so you know a common example that that we hear about is um, how medical education textbooks, teaching dermatology, use almost exclusively pictures of Mm -hmm. fair skin people to um, educate medical students about how to identify uh, skin problems. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so that so that once doctors get into practice and they have um, patients with dark skins, they are not adequately trained to identify. skin problems. A, an example that has come up since um, the COVID pandemic is the use of pulse oximeters to measure oxygen saturation, right? I got one mm-hmm. of those little devices I have at home to, you know, just in case I got sick, I could make sure that my oxygen saturation was good. You stick it on your finger. yeah. And apparently it uses light um, to, to measure um, the oxygen saturation. And lo and behold, they don't work as well. Mm-hmm. On dark-skinned people, and and that's been known for a long time, right? So they were not giving accurate measurements for darker-skinned people. And and just yeah. this past fall, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States has has finally said, maybe we need to look at these medical devices and the fact that they don't yield accurate results. Um. So that's you know that's a, that's just an, a couple of examples of how kind of the the norm of whiteness gets embedded right, in ways that aren't overtly or maliciously discriminatory, but nonetheless, they have um, a discriminatory effect. And, and I think one other thing that, that I'll, I'll mention before I pause is just I think that really since the early 20th century, medicine has reflected a, a biomedical model right, where medicine or doctors examine the body to determine the cause of illness and to take steps to correct it. The thing is that today, we know that the most important root causes of poor health lie outside a person's body. Right? So here I'm talking about the social determinants of health, like education and housing and transportation and, and employment. And, and those social determinants have been shaped to a large degree by forces like racism and ableism and capitalism, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 knowledge really rep- the, the knowledge that a lot of what makes people sick comes from outside their bodies mm-hmm. and is shaped by social forces. It really represents a challenge to the authority and the professional stature of medicine, right? You know, we we have tended to um, make doctor hero doctor heroes and you know treat them put them on this this um, give them this exalted status based on these miracles they can work to make us well and and once we start recognizing that oh actually it's not as much or not solely about the doctor to be able to make us well but what really could make us healthier is looking at kind of what is lies in society around us i think that that, that threatens to, to make doctors not as important as they have been historically, um, mm. societally, and, and to diminish somewhat some of their um, political authority.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I imagine that's been affected too by the transition from that point at which more people were dying of infectious disease and dying young and things that doctors actually could treat if we had the medicines for it to now an era of chronic disease, much of which, which is caused by systemic issues and, you know, poor socioeconomic conditions and discrimination and such.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, recognizing that that it really is both more effective from a health perspective as well as from a cost perspective to focus more on some of those um root causes for ill health, the kinds of chronic diseases that you mentioned, um, has affected how we understand the role of medicine. Um, And and I also, I mean, you mentioned the fact that that discrimination plays a role. I think that's the other thing that we can't um, gloss over when thinking about how hard it is to root out um, racism from medicine. There is at least in the United States, Black people today still regularly experience that they're treated differently from white people by healthcare professionals. So there was a a survey that was done in 2020 when seven in 10 Black Americans said that the healthcare system treats patients unfairly based on their race or ethnicity either very or somewhat often. And, And in that same survey, one in five Black adults reported experiencing racial discrimination when they were getting healthcare for themselves or a family member Hmm. just in the past year, right? So one in five experienced discrimination in healthcare settings just in the past year.
1: Hmm. Well, now let's talk about um, people with disabilities. And would you tell us about the medical model of disability, which in your words understands a disabled person as somehow broken and needing medical assistance uh, what are the repercussions of that model and what alternative understandings
0: do we have? yeah so so the repercussions of the medical model um, are that if you if you view disability as being all about what's wrong with a person's body then the way to somehow address the disadvantage or the harms, um, the ill effects of disability would be to say, well, fix the body, right? Fix whatever is wrong with the body. And and that is the historical approach. And that's the, the main idea Behind the medical model and it 's referred to as the medical model um, not only because it 's the model that is, is has historically been espoused by the medical profession but it 's the model that says that it's you know who can fix the brokenness well it's a doctor hmm. right in other words it, it views disability kind of as a pathology within an individual and the person needs a doctor to fix it the doctors are the expert and People with disabilities are, are just supposed to cooperate with the doctor so that the doctor can fix their brokenness, and and that also becomes important because doctors have historically had the responsibility um, for validating a person's disability before that person could access any available social assistance. Right, so so disability benefit programs have really treated doctors as gatekeepers who have control over disabled people's access to support. Um, And so I think the repercussions are is that it, on some level, again, grants power and authority to doctors while undercutting the authority of disabled people to subjectively report and identify their disability. And also it points to, from the perspective of you, you ask, what's an alternative? From the perspective of the alternative model, which is a social model of disability, the medical model is pointing to the wrong thing for a remedy, right? So, under the social model of disability, and and this is a model that has you know originated several decades ago now and has evolved over time, but but kind of the the core. Um, message of the social model or the core insight is that the disadvantages experienced by disabled people don't flow primarily um, and certainly not exclusively from anything wrong with their body but instead flow from social systems and structures that are set up in ways that exclude people from uh, people with disabilities from participation, right? So the social model doesn't deny that there is something different about the bodies of uh, and or minds of people with disabilities, but it denies that those differ- differences signify inferiority or or that they somehow inevitably produce disadvantage, right? So from the perspective of the social model. <clears throat> The remedy is to change the social structures or systems that cause exclusion and disadvantage, right? The the main focus doesn't need to be on fixing what's wrong with a person, but instead fixing the social structures. And to what extent is
1: the social model of disability being implemented in the real world?
0: Well, certainly, when you look at um, disability discrimination legislation like the Americans with Disabilities Act, mm-hmm. uh, there is it represents um, a social model of disability because it treats uh, discrimination as including not only intentional discrimination, for example, you know using the medical context a a doctor saying i 'm sorry i don 't treat people with intellectual disabilities that would be overt, intentional discrimination, but the the ADA also says that a failure to make accommodations or to remove barriers can be a form of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, that approach to understanding what actually causes disadvantage among people with disabilities has found its way into legislation. Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) that's the good news. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that more than three decades after the ADA's enactment, there are still a lot of barriers that exist in medical settings. And so passing a law is one thing, actually implementing and enforcing it is another. I mean, one of the areas where There's still a lot of problems when it comes to people with disabilities seeking medical care. Is is simply the lack of um, accessible medical diagnostic equipment, right? So Mm -hmm. one example is just you know when you go to the doctor's office, if if you are someone who walks and can get around easily, you you hop up onto that examination table, but those typical examination tables are not accessible to someone who uses a wheelch- who uses mm. a wheelchair, yeah. and that means that, that wheelchair users may go years without being weighed, or if you're a woman, having a pap smear or a mammogram, mm. um, and so you really aren't getting appropriate medical care, um, so there are a lot of ways in which the ADA, with its social model of disability, has not been fully implemented in medical settings.
1: Hmm. Well, now in chapter four, you get into maybe what to me is maybe the most sensitive area of all, which is the valuation of an individual's life. You think of when some people were talking about death panels when the Affordable Care Act was being introduced. So I was really struck in your book by the story of Bill Peace. Um, who was a wheelchair user whose doctor offered to withdraw treatment and let him die when he was hospitalized for a life-threatening wound infection. And I should add, he recovered from that infection. Would you tell us about that story and what it says about the intersection of disabled people and critical care?
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm so glad you picked up on this story because I think it offers such a, a chilling illustration of how physicians may fail to appreciate the value of continued life to a disabled person. So there's a lot of literature out there um, that that has documented that doctors tend to um, estimate that a disabled person's quality of life is less than the quality of life of a non-disabled person, even though surveys show that on average, people with disabilities tend to be about as satisfied with their lives as people who don't have disabilities. But, but I think the the story of Bill Peace really takes it to a different level because it's looking at, as you said, even the value of life. So, so Bill Peace was an anthropologist um, and a disability rights advocate who, as you said, used a wheelchair. And, and at one point. Um, he was hospitalized. He had a, a life threatening wound infection and he was hospitalized for treatment of that infection. And and one night he was he was medically stable but but I guess he was vomiting and he had a high fever. And at two AM in the morning he was visited by a physician whom he'd never met before. And so Bill Peace is alone in this hospital room with the doctor. Um, And the doctor starts telling him about the medical and social and financial challenges of continuing to treat Bill Peace's wound. And then, as you suggest, the the physician told Peace that, you know, I can stop the the antibiotic treatment um, that you're undergoing right now and and that was necessary to, to save his life and assured Peace that that if he chose that option, he could be made very comfortable. Well, Peace rejected the suggestion, right? So this was, as they say, this was not his first rodeo. As a person with long-term disabilities, he had encountered this sort of um, medical bias against disability before, and so in a sense, even though he was in very compromised circumstances with having a wound and vomiting and having a high fever, he had the presence of mind to know what was going on and to say no. And, and later he, as you said, recovered from the wound. And, and he wrote about that night, which is where I, you know, found my material. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a quote from what he wrote because I think it's so powerful. He wrote, my fear was based on the knowledge that my existence as a person with a disability was not valued. Many people, the physician I met that fateful night included, assume disability is a fate worse than death. In a visceral and potentially lethal way, that night made me realize I was not a human being, but rather a tragic figure. Out of the kindness of the physician's heart, I was being given a chance to end my life. And, and as he was writing about this um, experience, Peace really was, was very deliberate in, in indicating that this was not a, a one-off. This was not a unique experience. Um, he insisted that his suspicion and fear were not unique. So he, he went on to write, and I'll just give you one more short quote. Most people with a disability fear even the most routine hospitalization. We do not fear any of the commonplaces indignities those without a disability worry about when hospitalized. Our fear is primal. Will our lives be considered devoid of value? And so I think that um, really gives us a sense as to what we should be concerned about when we're thinking about, as, as you put it, the the um, connection of disabled people and and critical care, because I think when we look at at critical care, that is when a person is likely to be most vulnerable. Um, And particularly, our experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic, when, um, you know, I, I would read stories about people with disabilities, going to the hospital Um, with COVID-19, but not being able to be accompanied by family members or other caregivers. And, you know, that can really affect people's ability to um, communicate at Mm -hmm. the most basic level, in in, at least in some cases, and may also really affect their ability to um, be able to make decisions, uh, that, that can stand up to the authority of, A medical provider or even to insist on care um, that is needed when medical providers may be considering um, disabled lives to be of lesser value. There there were some stories in the United States about um, hospitals that were saying to uh congregate care facilities where people with with intellectual disabilities live don't send us COVID-19 patients unless you have a DNR for them Hmm. right you know kind of presuming these are not people that we are going to take extreme measures to say
1: yeah so a do not resuscitate order
0: right a do not resuscitate order yeah
1: yeah wow well that would be scary um And I want to ask you about policy next. What are some of the common concerns regarding Medicaid for black people and disabled Americans? And also for our listeners who are not American, would you just briefly tell us
0: what Medicaid is? Right. So Medicaid um, in the United States is a public health insurance program that provides coverage to lower income Americans, um, right? Medicare is the program that provides uh, coverage primarily to older Americans. Medicaid is the program that provides income primarily to lower income Americans. And and I think that that fact that it provides uh, coverage to lower income Americans is a key point Um of connection for Black people and disabled people, because because of the greater prevalence of poverty among Black people and disabled people in the United States as compared to white people and non-disabled people, those groups are disproportionately represented among Medicaid beneficiaries right and and so that by itself the overrepresentation in medicaid is is one key point of similar interest um i think that there are other points of similar interest as well and and they have to do with medicaid funding and the medicaid expansion and and in the book i i write about particularly the experience in 2017 when when Conservatives in the United States put forth these proposals to uh, really, it was primarily to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but they said, well, while we're at it, we'll also cut funding from Medicaid. Um, and it provoked this this amazing set of demonstrations um, in which Black people and disabled people figured prominently, but, but they had this shared interest in the strength and the continuation of the Medicaid program and and Medicaid expansion. So what Medicaid expansion refers to is a provision of the Affordable Care Act that made Medicaid more broadly available to lower income people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you didn't have to show that you were... Aged or um, disabled, or um, the parent of a minor child, in order to qualify for for Medicaid, as well as being low income. And that Medicaid expansion helped um, address different rates, disparities in uninsurance coverage rates between Black people and white people a great deal. So so the fact that states were covering more people with their Medicaid program really helped lower the gap in insurance coverage rates. But there was a Supreme Court decision that was decided back in 2012 that said, actually, states, I know the Affordable Care Act says you have to expand your Medicaid program, but instead, we think the federal government went too far. Congress went too far in in making you do this. It was too coercive. So we're going to make it optional for states to expand their Medicaid program. And so a lot of states, most states said, yeah, we're going to expand the program. The federal government is going to co- give us a lot of money to cover our low-income residents. That's a great thing but there were more than a dozen states that, that held out um, for a good number of years. Yeah. And those happened to be states where they had higher rates of uninsured black people, right? So there was this, this real connection between failures to expand Medicaid and the impact on black people. And part of what was gonna happen in 2017 if these legislative proposals went through was that the Medicaid expansion was gonna be ended entirely in all likelihood. And that would have particularly harmed black people. Now, the particular harm that that disabled people would have faced was that the proposals also were going to cut more than 800 billion dollars from the Medicaid program over 10 years. And that would disproportionately harm disabled people because disabled people really rely on Medicaid for home and community-based services that let them live in the community rather than an institution. But in this um, odd quirk of legislative drafting that, that comes from when the Medicaid law was enacted back in 1965, states have to cover nursing home care if they're going to participate in the Medicaid program, but they don't have to cover home and community-based services. Hmm. In other words, those services are optional. States can cover them if they choose to, but they don't have to. Hmm. And so the fear was that if states didn't have to cover those home and community-based services, that that would be an area where states would make cuts if they received funding cuts from the federal government. And that that could force a lot of disabled people to go back into institutions where they didn't wanna live. Hmm. Now, that's the historical picture, but I think that that there's also the forward-looking picture in terms of policy concerns. One of the the real concerns where I think that Black people and disabled people have shared concerns around Medicaid is um, proposals that have been out there for for a while now and seem to be gaining traction um, during the Trump administration to permit Medicaid, state Medicaid programs to impose work requirements Mm -hmm. on um, Medicaid recipients. In other words, you have to work a certain amount or you have to be looking for work or you will lose your Medicaid coverage. And and for both black people and disabled people, the implementation of those kinds of requirements would be likely to have a greater impact on them, Mm -hmm. um, on those groups rather than on White Medicaid recipients or Medicaid recipients who don't have any disability. And and for a while, it looked like those were um, with the Biden administration, they had come in and said, we're not going to approve um, work requirements. But but interestingly enough, just following the most recent election, the new governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, um, who at one point served as the press secretary for Donald Trump when he was president, she has announced that she is going to propose a new set of work requirements as part of Arkansas's Medicaid program, where she is now the governor. Um, So it's certainly an idea that is still out there. And I just think that Medicaid generally is likely to remain in the crosshairs of conservative attempts to Mm. shred the social safety net. Um, So I think that black people and disabled people are likely to have common concerns. But the the one point that I'd like to also make is that Medicaid can also be a real lever for progressive policies to address distinctive health challenges experienced by people with disabilities and Black people. Um, so it can be a way of really improving the coverage of services that would benefit those groups in particular. So you know there are proposals out there that home and community-based services should be made a mandatory benefit for the Medicaid program, Mm -hmm. right? And that could have an enormous impact um, improving the lives of people with disabilities. Similarly, there are proposals in various states to permit Medicaid to cover the services um, of doulas for women um, who are pregnant and giving birth. And and that is the the extension of coverage to services from non-medical providers, um, providers who in particular, Black women who face higher levels of maternal mortality um, in conventional settings that they may seek and feel more comfortable with, increasing coverage for those sorts of services could actually help. Right? So, you know, Medicaid is—you is, can look at it either way. If you, if you cut it, if you limit it it can have disproportionate um, negative impact on black people or people with disabilities. If you actually think about how you can use it to enhance care that's received, um, it can be a great tool for good. Yeah, and
1: that's largely down to the state, isn't it? Because even though it's a federal program, isn't it managed by the states?
0: (laughs) Exactly. So it's a it's a it's a federal state partnership where the federal government provides um, actually the majority of the money, but the state also provides money. And it's administered on a state by state basis. But the states have to administer their medical uh, Medicaid programs in accordance with with parameters that are set by the federal government, both in the uh, Medicaid statute itself, and in federal regulations implementing the Medicaid program. So, so there are guardrails, so to speak, and and there are also, um, you know, the the federal government could kind of change the the ground rules um, to permit greater um, progressive policies if state Medicaid programs chose to pick them up.
1: And I imagine that our non-American listeners are right now thinking, why on earth do they do things that way? And we could probably spend an entire program talking about Medicaid, but I I wanna ask you about now about COVID-19 and the pandemic. So your book came out just, I won't say after the pandemic, but after the initial two years that we've had of it. And by now it it has been well-documented that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected disadvantaged populations disproportionately that's something that we've really learned and you were to write about two in particular which are incarcerated people and nursing home residents so would you explain the link between black and or disabled people and those two populations incarcerated and nursing home uh, and the impact that COVID 19 has had upon them
0: sure so so it's interesting because you know i actually you know, sat down to start writing this book in January of 2020. So you can imagine that my my book proposal did not include a chapter on COVID-19. Um, but it quickly became apparent that I needed to add a chapter. And I'll answer your question in just a minute. But I guess I want to emphasize that the reason... Um, or the the main point that I was hoping to convey in this chapter of of the book that has to do with COVID-19 was that the disadvantages, the disproportionate disadvantages that the groups that you just referred to, people who were nursing home residents um, and people who were incarcerated, the fact that they experienced greater levels of infection and death were not happenstance. It didn't have to happen that way. Those figures were the result of choices that were made largely before um, the the pandemic erupted, right? They were the choices uh, that were made as a matter of social policy and legal enforcement well before the COVID nineteen pandemic. So to 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 get to your your question, right? When you look at those two groups. Um, people are not necessarily going to think of incarcerated people as having a lot of similarities with um, people living in nursing homes, unless you are a fan of Michel Foucault who, who and others who look at kind of the, the, the commonality bio-power, of institutional, yeah. <laughs> excuse me.
1: Oh, I was going to say biopower, but yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. That, that look at the similarities of these kind of institutions that confine people. Um, but. But well, most people walking the streets today don't don't necessarily think of biopower. But but I think it is important to note just how um, similar or at least you know the kind of um, resemblances between the populations. Because certainly when you look at the inca- people who are incarcerated in the United States, I think it is very well known in the United States that that those um, people who are incarcerated are disproportionately black and brown. Right, so one in every three incarcerated people in the United States is black, which greatly um, overrepresents their um, presence in the general population. But it's also true, and people are not as, as aware of, I think, that disabled people are also disproportionately represented among the incarcerated population. So the rates of reporting disability, is three times higher among incarcerated people than for the general population. And, and the, the number is even greater um, for people with co- cognitive disabilities and serious mental illness. So when you look at the people who are in prisons, they are more likely to be Black or brown or disabled or some combination of the above right? than the general population, and and so part of what I try to do in the chapter is to to kind of peel back some of the policy choices, one that led to that overrepresentation, but then also to um, try to explain why um, the prison healthcare system was so ill prepared to actually deal with the pandemic once it arrived. The other thing, when you when you know, I shift focus from the incarcerated population to people who are residing in nursing homes. Again, I think most people when they think of nursing homes think, well, nursing homes are for, for old people, right? Um and, and in many cases that's that's true. Perhaps most cases. Um and certainly I wouldn't discount the role that that ageism plays in the lack of preparedness that nursing homes had for an event like Covid nineteen, and for the the lack of really um, attention paid to making sure that that safety regulations are robust and are enforced. But I actually think that the more kind of accurate way of understanding the common denominator of people who reside in nursing homes is disability, right? Because there's a significant fraction of nursing home residents who are long term nursing home residents who are not old. They may be um, they may be quite young, or they may be, you know, middle-aged adults, and they're there because they have a disability that prevents them from living independently without significant supports, and they're not able to achieve those supports. So, I think that we we need to really recognize that kind of the the through theme of of what happened in. Um, Covid-19 with nursing home deaths and infections really was something that happened to disabled people. And and an important point, again, looking at this kind of overlap between race and disability, is that the data showed that nursing homes that tended to have the highest death rates from Covid were also nursing homes that had the highest Concentration of black patients, right? So, not all nursing homes were created equal when it came to COVID-19. You were much more likely to die of COVID-19 if you were in a um, nursing home that had a, a high percentage of, of black residents. And again, you know what I what I try to do in the book, without going into depth here, is to look at why it is that um, that Played out um, where where there wasn't um, robust enforcement of safety regulations in nursing homes, and again that that represented a choice that was made politically, um, because I would argue a, a devaluation of the lives of of people who reside in nursing homes.
1: Yeah, and something that it's really really important to look at, and hopefully hopefully something we will learn from this pandemic. Um, how unfairly people are treated and maybe how they should be treated more fairly. I mean, that seems so basic, but.
0: um, Well, and and I think it's easy to not to really look at and to, to become aware of that it's way too easy to say, well, of course people who live in nursing homes are going to be more likely to get sick and die because they have some kind of underlying condition. And that's, No, that is true that the underlying conditions of of people who lived in um, nursing homes playing a role, that's accurate, but it's far from the whole picture. And I think it's that whole picture that we need to be willing to look at and respond to. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: I can't let you get away without talking about intersectionality. Um, It's a term that comes up in the introduction and it comes up again in chapter seven where you discuss social determinants of health and then in the penultimate chapter before the conclusion. So I want to ask you what is at the busy troubled intersection of blackness and disability, which is the wonderfully evocative name of the chapter.
0: Sure. So, um, I'll have to start by saying we don't know a whole lot about what is at that intersection, right? So so you know, when I say the intersection of blackness and disability, I I guess the most obvious meaning of that is, you know, what are the lives and health-related experiences of people who are both black and disabled, like. Right? And that's that's where we really don't know a lot. There is one of the reasons why I Chose these two groups to be at kind of the center of the book is there is a great dearth of information um, and research and understanding when it comes to people who are both black and disabled and what what their experiences are like. So so I can't tell you a whole lot about exactly what we find there and and part of what I Hope to encourage with the book is is greater attention to this, both in terms of kind of health research um, that is done empirically, but also in discussions of an advocacy around health justice um, for people who are both Black and disabled. But but I will can explain what I meant by both the busy part and the troubled part of the intersection. So I would say that the, that intersection is busy because we do know that in the United States disability is typically more prevalent among Black people than among white people. So CDC um, data indicate that approximately one in four Black people in the U.S. have a disability compared to one in five among white people. And there's also research um, suggesting that Black people are more likely to become disabled as they get older and that they actually May do so at younger ages than white people become disabled as they age. So that's the kind of busy part of the intersection. The troubled part of the intersection is is what I is is one of the really key points that that I make in the book, and and that's that although the research remains quite limited, it seems highly likely that disabilities more frequent and earlier appearance among black people is attributable to unjust. Social and economic and political conditions that are the product of of structural racism, right? They're the product of practices and policies embedded in society and in institutions that burden black people more greatly than than white people. And so, part of what I I try to um, really illuminate in the book is is the idea of what scholars have described as you know, quote, unquote, emergency disability, right? And, and, and scholars have used that term to describe how disableding conditions really multiply in communities that experience poverty or disadvantage. And I argue that a lot of disability among Black people in the United States likely falls within this category of emergent disability. Right, and I give I give some examples, and and these are not hard to identify. Right, you look at the children in Flint, Michigan, who acquired learning disabilities um, after being exposed to lead in their drinking water, or you look at Black Americans with diabetes who are disproportionately likely to lose limbs to amputation as compared to White Americans with disabilities, and it's often because um, the Black Americans with dis- diabetes face barriers to accessing medical care to diagnose or manage their disease. I think another example of, of kind of emergent disability are, are victims of gun violence who live in communities of concentrated poverty, right, where systematic disinvestment has, has pretty much eliminated opportunity and left illegal activity to fill the void. So the point that I really try to make about this kind of troubled intersection is that for many Black disabled people more so than white disabled people, disability really has its origin in inequitable social and economic circumstances. And I think that that means that that folks who are Black and disabled face layers of injustice and exclusion that go beyond those experienced by, by people who are white and disabled, right? But because of their disability, black disabled people may face barriers to full participation in society. But but in a lot of those cases, just having the disability can be chalked up to racial injustices that persist in the United States. And And simply getting the kind of accommodations that they might receive as a result of disability discrimination laws, isn't going to remedy that underlying um, racial injustice. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Mary, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I would like to ask you before you go, what what are you working on now? So
0: what I'm working on now is I, th- I think there was a lot of um, in my book kind of shining a light on, wow, look at all of these really um troubling problems. And and what I'm working on now is something that I, I hope will be a little bit more um, remedy oriented. So I'm working on a project where I'm arguing that in the United States, the Department of Health and Human Services should recognize and expect that entities that receive healthcare funding from the federal government should have an obligation to take affirmative steps to try to advance health equity. So this, just a little bit of background, this comes from, from a provision of housing law in the United States. The Fair Housing Act has an express statutory provision that says that recipients of federal housing funds have an obligation, and this is the language, to affirmatively further fair housing you've got to not just refrain from intentionally discriminating you've actually got to move the needle towards greater oh equity and 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 the reason why congress included this explicitly in the fair housing law was that it knew that the government had played a role in creating segregation um residential racial segregation in the united states and so there was this you know kind of clear moral Um, imperative to be part of the solution as well. And there's this quite great quote from John F. Kennedy writing about or talking about the the Civil Rights Act in which this was um, kind of embodied this idea of simple justice requires that if you are receiving federal funds, you don't use them to discriminate based on race. And there's not a similar explicit statutory provision in laws um that relate to healthcare funding, but there is a similar history of government, I would say complicity in entrenching and 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 contributing to racial health disparities. Um, and so I'm really looking at an argument for, for uh, establishing a, a similar affirmative obligation on the part of federal healthcare care funding recipients to be a part of the solution, so to speak.
1: Well, great. Uh, great to hear about some steps towards a better future. And I want to remind everyone, the book is Embodied Injustice, Race, Disability, and Health by Mary Crossley. And Mary, thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Oh, thank you, Rachel. I've, I've enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity.